Hello and welcome to Kiki TV and welcome to my expert event and I'm so happy to be sitting down with Sally K. Norton who I feel like I've known forever. We have so much in common and um, Sally has really introduced me to an extraordinary, joyous, age-free healing path which is around oxalates. And Sally's really the queen of oxalates. She has a nutritional background. She also has a background of suffering extreme pain, joint deterioration, bone deterioration, back deterioration. She was an avid gardener eating all of her vegetables and an avid yogi uh, doing everything right. And the way that she came to solve and resolve her health problems and is now doing that through her counseling and coaching and her um, presentations uh, is really life-changing. Sally, thank you for joining me today. I'm so grateful to the work and the dedication that you've shown to this oxalate conundrum. <laughs> thank you. It's a delight to connect with you and everybody that's with us. So tell me how you were eating, the health problems you were having, and how you traced it to something called oxalates, and then let us know what those are. Okay, that's a big question. I'll try not to take two hours to answer that okay. one. <laughs> yeah, so I've been interested in eating well since I was a little kid, like from pre-kindergarten on. And you didn't even love desserts, you know, like we, we were making gingerbread men in, in pre-K. And I said, here, mommy, you want my gingerbread man? I don't want this. <laughs> like, I'd rather have rhubarb crisp than a gingerbread man you know like i we my mom grew some stuff in the yard and my sister and i loved to just really were plant people i'm a plant fanatic i love gardening i started gardening as a nine-year-old wow. and growing my mom taught me i should grow swiss chard because unlike spinach it comes and comes again you know it's like cut and come again and like so i already knew a whole lot about how to grow vegetables before puberty and had, you know really into that and probably because as a little kid I lost my tonsils at age five because they couldn't figure out how to keep me off penicillin. So something was up with my health early mm. on. And I think a lot of us who have had a lot of antibiotics early in life definitely end up in oxalate trouble for sure. And I think too, is that that early childhood experience is very Im impressive on our personalities and our priorities in life. So my priority to to live a full life without being sick was just there as part of who I am. And I'm, I'm, you know, in kind of the after game show and thinking about my life, I realized it partially grows out of that experience of not getting to go in the pool in the summer because I always had swimmer's ear and, you know, all the things that were not good when I was three, four and five years old. That, you know, so I've been devoted to health and decided as a 12 year old that I wanted to study nutrition because, hey, if you know how to eat, then you don't get sick and you don't get heart attacks, you don't get cancer and you can have a great productive life and just like be successful and happy and, and fill your life up with fun instead of doctors. And you, you know, help that other people. Rational. If you what? study nutrition, you spread the word and you help. And change yeah, and then you life. start teaching people how to eat vegetarian, mm -hmm. which is what I did. Right. Which it, to me now, I feel like I have blood on my hands for doing that. I worked in the inner city of Cleveland for the health department and I did all the stress management instruction. That was when I started, well, that was well after I started learning yoga. I started teaching myself yoga right after high school. 
and then when I was in Cleveland, I studied with a gal there, some yoga there, and I continued as best I could until my body gave out thanks to my diet, my <laughs> diet. So, so, but you know, I did things like I taught the senior lunch program staff how to do vegetarian food and that they should do this for their, it's, that was not right. I, I didn't know how wrong I was. I started being a vegetarian around 18 or 19 or Me too. You know, early. Because Francis LePay came out with that book, Diet for a Small Planet. It was all the thing. It was now in paperback. You could buy it for six bucks <laughs> and change the world. It was my world. Bible. Everything in <laughs> Francis Moore LePay's Diet for a Small Planet is embedded in my mind. I was an impressionable 19, 20-year-old. And then um, John Robbins followed up with yep. Diet for a New America. Exactly the and path. <laughs> he was the Baskin and Robbins heir who grew up swimming in an ice cream cone-shaped swimming pool. And resenting his father. And then told us all to be uh, vegetarian and vegan and vegan. everything like that. Vegan. He's the one who switched me over. I was going through a divorce at the time. I had no business doing this, but I was... I subscribed to the Vegetarian Times or whatever, whatever that magazine is <laughs> I was glued to and clipping recipes from and got, you know, like you could order through the mail, the John Robbins book. So his book told me that all milk is pus and disgusting. I know. Eggs are going to kill you and you know, all this stuff. And Meat so rots like, in your intestines and yeah. it putrefies into cancer. Like, Meat doesn't even touch our intestines. Like there's so much um, vegetarian lore that just keeps being passed. Fear mongering, fear mongering. It's very sad. It's it really is sad. sad. But you know, I'm Sally, surprised that these folks are even alive if they're really too. living what they're teaching because it pretty much dissolved my health. I mean, right after I went vegan, I got so I couldn't go up and down stairs without knee pain. So I was vegetarian for eight years, and then around the age of about 27, I turned vegan because of John Robbins' book. And at that point, I got pneumonia three times, and my knees were killing me. I had to do hero pose every morning. When you were a young woman. Not even 30 years right. old. Doing all the right things. That's right. A goody two shoes to the health. Oh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> The, the integrity in that was very real. I mean, <clears throat> that's one thing about, you know, kind of a perfectionist personality is you, you feel a lot of integrity around your values and you want to live your values. And that's part of a mindfulness life and a, a yogic life is to be as completely whole as you can. And you can't believe something and do something different than what you believe right. and still like yourself. If you don't, you're so out of integrity with yourself. There's a certain amount of self-hate going on and you just haven't worked out your relationship with yourself. And all of that is part of being honest and loyal to who you are. But in the process, you get caught up in all this kind of social signaling that says, oh, aren't we great because we're vegetarians. And like you're joining a thing. And I have met people, when I, when I learned about oxalates, I was like, well, when I real when I had the insight about how much this has affected my life, like since I was 12 and started getting back pain and arthritis as a 12 year old. And then in college, I had to drop out for four years and have foot surgery that didn't really work. I had both feet operated on. I spent all kinds of time in wheelchairs and on crutches and on heavy painkillers. I was on huge amounts of ibuprofen for five years, long after the surgery, because I was still growing Swiss chard. Right. 
right there, I went back to college because the four-year leave of absence that I got at Cornell ran out. And I went back, planted my Swiss chard, and just continued to need painkillers and was miserable. And never understood any of that. So flash forward all the way to age 49, and I'm finally having this insight. And I thought, holy crap. If, if I've got a degree in public health, I've been studying all this health and nutrition and wellness stuff my entire life. I've been in the field of integrative medicine, running an NIH grant at a university, having colleagues and friends who do all the holistic healing practices, colleagues and friends who are standard medical people, colleagues and friends who are trying to bridge the gap between alternative holistic healing and conventional healthcare. That's what I did for five years straight was in that environment with all those all that social network of people who should have been able to fix me, who knew I was struggling. I would carry my sweet potatoes and brown rice to work. And my boss would say, you're never going to get cancer. She's so proud of me for my good eating. (laughs) And I thought, holy cow, if someone in my privileged position to have an Ivy League degree and a master's degree and, and be in this academic world of trying to bring the healthcare world together so we can do better for more people. And no one can help me. No one out there has a prayer of figuring this out. Right. So that's part of the integrity, like, uh uh-oh, it's my job. I can hear you, God. It's my job (laughs) to start teaching this. That's right. And I, I never expected that anyone who was currently practicing a vegetarian diet would change that diet. That was never my intention or expectation. But it's been fascinating. Because those of us who brought to our knees are willing to reach for life. That's right. And Cornell is now teaching a vegan-based nutrition certificate and online. Um, but I definitely was brought to my knees with overall joint pain. Uh, I had fainted from uh, B12 anemia. Oh and sprained my entire pelvis and it did not heal. It did not, it wouldn't, it couldn't heal. Every ligament uh, torqued around and no, all the amazing body work that I got, all the amazing healers, the acupuncture, acupuncture helped the most, but it really was adding animal products back in, being exposed to your work, and removing the oxalates and then some other leaders in the keto, like the keto community, the ancestral health community. And I made a couple of videos recently. It was really hard for me to go on my YouTube channel and say like, I'm doing keto or Ayurveda includes hundreds of kinds of animals to meet, to eat. And no Ayurvedic practitioner, the most healing food is bone broth meat broth, marrow. I went to top Ayurvedic doctors in India and in the US. No one said bone broth. No one said marrow. So Mm. I made some videos about that. And many women, most of them I'd say 45, 55 plus, reached out to me privately that they were having immune issues, joint pain, rashes, everything that I had. And privately, I have supported them to eat meat, but it's very difficult to be a lifelong vegetarian. And many of us have traveled to South India. All of our teachers are 
vegetarian and there's a lot of religious belief around it and um, really occultism, cult, cultishness, but it's not our cult. It's for people born in those communities around their belief systems, but those became our belief systems as we travel to India and we learn so much from our teachers and we embrace this way of life, you know, further and further. But when I was in India a couple of years ago, a very insightful teacher of mine, obviously vegetarian, and he said to me, no one need eat this way except us. You need not eat this way. No one need eat this way except us because we're Brahmins. We're you know, we're holders of this traditional knowledge. This is our caste, so to speak. This is our lifestyle. This was, this is almost a burden that's put on us. Making the sacrifice of not eating meat is, it is a seen as a sacrifice. And so having that insightful and compassionate approval was very supportive for me. But like you say, there is all this virtue signaling and these puritanical ideas coming into vegetarianism, that each one of us is saving the planet. Sally, I haven't saved the planet yet. <laughs> I read Diet for a New Planet. I didn't save the planet. I read Diet for a New America. I didn't save America. No, you didn't. And you know what, what's been interesting, like one of the first people who came to my, one of my very early talks, she is, was a very busy mom with a family business and really didn't have time to come out for talks, but she was desperate because she had this really bad jumpy bladder that was destroying her life. She couldn't ride in the car for more than 15 minutes without a bathroom. It was really bad. And she, at first, she heard me speak, you know, and it just really made her angry that figs, which were biblical in her mind, like God and Moses hated them and stuffed them in our mouths and said, you must eat this. This is, this is divinity embodied. She couldn't believe that I was saying that figs were too high in oxalate and essentially are toxic for us. Because I shared a story with my husband, like I had fig trees in my garden because we live in an area where you can have fig trees and figs are this symbol of like, you know, all the Renaissance paintings <laughs> have this the fig bowls leaf. of fruit. Like you've arrived, if you're eating fresh fruit and vegetables, it's been a thing in terms of elitism since the Renaissance painting, right? So there's a real, we don't want to admit that in Western culture, but that's our Western culture that was been handed to us for the last 400 years that, okay, so you're living the good life when you have a fresh fig or a fresh fruit and you pop it in your mouth. And my grandfather was a fruitaholic. He was a pastry chef originally born in Switzerland and went to France to study pastry chef and that didn't work. So by the time he's like 19 or so, he landed in New York and, and created uh, European pastries his whole life. He was an instructor, a teacher. So he had a sweet tooth. He ended up with diabetes, but he loved his fruit, of course. And like him, I was a fruitaholic as a kid too. <clears throat> Loved, you know, we'd go apple picking in central New York where I'm from originally. And, you know, I would literally devour in high school a, a bushel of apples on my own in a matter of 10 days. And apple cider in New York state, you just chug that, it's nectar. Yeah. So you get really attached to these things. And, and this gal who was so angry about the figs really admitted later when she came down and she saw 
everything I was saying, when she ate the figs from her mother's tree, she'd have a week of being stuck in the bathroom. When she'd go crazy on tea, same thing. Like she could just, now that I pointed out which foods there were that were triggering her episodes, it was clear her body was completely matching what I was saying. And she had to come down off of her whole specialness in her mind, her whole identity of who she was. She said to me, I'm not a woman. I'm not a white person. I'm a vegan. I'm a vegetarian. That's my specialness. Everyone had to dance around that and accommodate me. And that was my thing. My husband was not into it. My kids are not into it. My friends are not into it, but that was me. So she turned her choices of food into an identity. And that's where people really get stuck is that they think that their essential soul is attached to their food choices. And unfortunately, I think that you know, I have a much more material attitude. I'm Madonna all the way. I think the best way to celebrate life is to take care of the one you've been given. And that life is about molecules. It's about material. It's about getting the right matter to support you and honoring how nature designed you to be and being willing to live within the nature you've been handed. And, and not pretend you're, you can think your way into something superior to nature. You're gonna get in trouble if you try to swim against biology. And, and so we can have our teachings of how to be grounded emotionally, how to breathe, how to qu be quiet ourselves and be. And that means stopping all this cultural programming and just getting down to truly listening. And when you do, your body will help you move towards your own nature. And you have to love yourself enough to allow that development to occur. Absolutely, Sally. That's so well said. Yes, we each need to love ourselves enough to pursue the gift of health and vitality and peace of mind. And when we have that, we support all those that we love. And that spills over from our relationships, from our home, into our community, into the you know, global community. So yes, thank you for that. That's a truly yogic insight based in yoga concepts. So tell me what these oxalates are and how they could have such an effect. So we understand they come from some fruits and vegetables and they are right. affecting right. Bladder. So oxalates are a set of compounds that come from oxalic acid, which is a two carbon molecule, very tiny. It's actually quite ubiquitous in nature. It's in the soil, it's in the rocks, the trees make it, the plants make it, the clouds make it, sea spray apparently promotes it, like it's yeah. everywhere. And our pollution can turn into oxalate in the air and some of what we call acid rain, which I wrote about for my right. college application. Because in New York State, we have a lot of problem with acid rain. There's um, major species of deciduous and evergreen trees can't get past like five years old because the soil has been so altered by acid rain. It turns out oxalate is the major acid in acid rain or in smog. So in big cities like Beijing and you know LA, wherever there's true smog, that's oxalate is one of the poisons there in the air. So I find that fascinating. Um, also, something I've learned recently is that trees, plants in general use oxalate for many, many reasons. And they, science keeps discovering all these different reasons and they can turn them into crystals. 
because what oxalic acid is, is a chelator molecule. It's used in cleaners, by the way, and has been for the right. last 200 something years in Barkeeper's Friend, because that oxalic acid chelates iron, which is like rust and stains and things. You can clean the rust off your patio. You can clean a radiator. You can bleach fabric and leather. And, and they've used it in uh, you know textile mills for 200 years. Um, because it grabs minerals. So in nature, it tends to grab calcium, which is one of the most abundant minerals in the earth's crust. And so plants make calcium oxalate crystals on purpose. They have ways of putting out these peptides, these protein amino acid structures that create a, a scaffolding. And then because these particular amino acids like calcium, the calcium oxalates, see the oxalic acid and the calcium molecule come together and they stay pretty tight. And then they build, the calcium attaches to that scaffolding and plants build these special shapes of, of crystals. And one of the shapes are these toothpicks. They're tiny invisible toothpicks, the size of a dust mite. You can't see them. It takes a serious microscope and someone with skill to see them. But we can see them on key. your website. Yes. <laughs> we can see them on Sally's website, which I'll share with everyone. Yeah, it was kiwis helped teach me about oxalates, really, because I, I was so desperate the for The kiwi sure. fruit. The kiwi fruit, yes. yes. The kiwi fruit. Because around the seeds, there's this like mucilage, and in the mucilage are these, these toothpicks in these bundles. And what the plants, you can actually see videos online of the plant shooting out each toothpick. It's a little arrow intended to penetrate your mucus cells two cells deep. And in the arrow, it brings along with it the soluble oxalate, which goes right into your bloodstream and starts stealing calcium from your bloodstream. And that you know, upsets the whole mucous membrane and that, that barrier is disturbed and then the immune system comes in and you can turn on the whole immune system, inflame the mouth, tongue and throat. And this is why the houseplant Diffenbachia is called dumb cane because if you get one drop of sap on your mouth, it will cause such a reaction in your mucous membranes that you won't be able to speak. So unable to speak, one guy, you know, they put pictures of his mouth in the... In I, the I saw... Yeah. <laughs> nine days, I think it was, before he could speak properly. Or nine days in the hospital, maybe six days of not being able to speak from one drop that he spit out immediately. So those little crystals, once they're let loose, can really be quite a problem. Now, if they're, if they're in the mucilage and there's a lot of pectin and stuff wrapped in them, you don't necessarily have good enzymes to break up the pectin and that bubble of mucilage will make it so you don't feel it in your mouth. But if it's getting broken down in the stomach or further down, you're, you're causing irritation to the gut. Your gut is a precious thing. That's the seed of so much, the seed of uh, neurological balance, the seed of self-understanding. That's why we say gut instinct, you know? Right. The, the seed of uh, your immune system and your body's understanding of whether, you know, what the immune system should be doing, a lot's going on in the gut. And like so many other chemicals in the plants we think are edible, these chemicals in plants are literally designed to kick you in the gut. It's designed to grab your neurology and make you stupid. Like it's trying to make bees and bugs and other critters that eat them confused about where that plant was by making them neurotoxic. So a lot of the effects of eating both the, the oxalic acid and the various metal forms of oxalate, calcium oxalate being the major one, but magnesium oxalate, you know, it can grab iron, magnesium, and so on. A lot of the effects ultimately are gut damage, 
neurological damage, uh, lost minerals, which can lead to osteoporosis and bone degeneration. Infertility. Infertility. Your glands, they somehow the glands really pick up oxalate and you get hypogonadism. So you get less testosterone or less estrogen, less function of your ovaries and your thyroid gland. 85% of us have crystals developing in our thyroid glands. The saliva glands collect and excrete oxalate um, because of the transporters that make your, your saliva alkaline. That bicarb transporter also transports oxalate molecules. So the level of oxalate in your saliva is four times higher than your blood. But if you're eating a lot of oxalate all the time, at some point there's some oxalate in your blood, the body tries to get it out and not keep it in the blood because that will cause you to have a heart attack because it'll it'll steal so much calcium and minerals from the blood. Now your pacemaker doesn't work right. And, and people who are seriously poisoned with oxalate in an acute way usually die of heart attack. Hmm. Uh, the chronic problems include kidney damage because you've got to excrete this stuff through your kidneys. And we tend to, it takes about four, you know, there is, in some of the studies, it shows like an hour after you eat, there's a peak of oxalate coming into the blood. It, but that, that process of oxalate coming into your blood is about an eight hour period. So if you ate a high oxalate breakfast of say peanut butter and whole wheat bread, and then you had a snack of something with nuts or had a spinach salad for lunch or a pizza with spinach and whatever on it for lunch, you've got before four hours have passed, you're starting to just absorb a lot of the oxalate from the previous meal. Now you're adding more to it. And then dinner comes along or snacks come along that include potatoes or these foods, whole wheat, potatoes, um, the greens. There's like three major greens that are a problem, the Swiss chard, the beet greens, and the spinach. Other greens are fine, but we're pushing spinach so much, it's become like the thing to eat. And now people who are busy grab these little bars made of nuts and so on and seeds. These are all high oxalate foods. So we're really upping the oxalate foods. Sweet potatoes was my favorite go-to thing, potatoes in general. So even if you're not into like cool eating and you're just eating French fries all the time or potato chips, which is also a common addiction, people needing potato chips every day, that, that alone is enough oxalate to get you in trouble. And of course, potato chip has no vitamin sprayed on it, unlike bread. It has glycosides and other toxins. Potatoes, you know, and, and deep fried and random canola oil and other right. junky oils. Industrial seed oils that are rancid. Rancid and, and just the wrong kind of fat and damage. You know, your membranes are made of fat. And membrane is where life itself happens. So if you love life, you better start loving on your membranes because everything that life does is a membrane event. Whether it's the outer membrane, the membranes that make up the mitochondria, which is a double membrane structure, the membranes that protect the DNA of the nucleus. By the way, there's DNA in your mitochondria too that matter a lot. There's also the endoplasmic reticulum and the vacuoles and you name it. There's all these structures that are the machinery of life depend on healthy membranes. And the fats you eat are going to affect those membranes tremendously because they're a, they're a fat structure. So many people say to me, and I'm sure they say it to you, and they're gonna say, they're saying it now, but we've eaten these things for thousands of years. Now I know yeah. you speak about eating out of seasonality. Well, you know, all of our eating things are contrived social you know, we've learned them socially, just like your, your teachers and, and so on 
mentors in India are saying, look, we've been handed to this by our culture. This is my requirement to stay within my bounds and my culture. They have a long tradition of respecting that. And we do too. So, you know, the Egyptians and so on made wheat the thing and created settlements. We created cities. We used to be for many, many tens and tens and tens and tens and thousands of years, wild and free, following herds, following the fish, following right. the weather, moving around. You know, we weren't bound by city-state boundaries. We weren't bound by anything. We, we figured out how to sail and populate the, the Greek islands and go up to Alaska and just Sweden, like go everywhere and just go forth and populate the earth. We knew how to do that before any real big technologies. Our big technologies were how to hunt, how to make blades, how to, you know, how to throw a sphere. And, and we're really good at that. That's why a baseball player can throw a ball at 90 miles mm -hmm. an hour because we are good spear throwers. We're designed, we did that. That was what we did. We hunted and we thanked nature for feeding us the way she wants us to be fed. And we were okay with our nature. We didn't have all this higher thinking about what's moral and what isn't. We were so embedded in our nature. We were living out our nature, but we're pretty smart. And this is kind of sort of the Garden of Eden lesson. You know, like we start getting knowledge, we start developing our technologies, and then we start wanting to control each other. We wanna create hierarchies, social hierarchies. We want to grow our communities and make them bigger. And then you're required to sort of settle down and create these city states and create these sedentary areas. And then we, we you know, developed the technologies. We invented agriculture and we started inventing foods by the way we were seed saving and breeding seeds and hybridizing, like really from the early days, we were picking these wild grass seeds and turning them into weed and so on through technology because we're clever little buggers, right? So, but living on wheat, all those car carcasses we dig up in the old pyramids and so on, arthritis, dying young, poor bone quality. Right. The bone Hormone. record shows that when we switch from hunting and living on animal foods, we used to, the bone record shows bigger brains, sturdier bones, really hefty, beautiful structures, nice symmetrical teeth. structures, teeth in place. But you dig up an Egyptian king and you have young people with arthritis and bad teeth and they were obviously suffering in a lot of pain because that food that they chose to build society on, the weed and the beer and the bread and the whatever they made with all the wheat was inadequate nutrition. And we've been compensating for that ever since. This is why the kings and queens were seen as like fat and gouty because they could afford sugar and other refinements and could afford to live on fruit and had people delivering these kinds of foods. They weren't out hunting, even though they did have meat. You know, they were, it was before we knew about vitamins. And so as we learned to live on fruit without understanding vitamins and then learn to refine wheat because the whole grains are bad for you. I mean, we developed white rice and developed white bread because eating whole grains is poor nutrition. Whole grains, the bran and so on, is not only high in oxalate, but phytates and all these other anti-nutrients and even the fiber is damaging to the gut and damaging to your ability to extract nutrients. Uh, polyphenols in plants interrupt your enzymes that try to extract amino acids and energy from your food. So when you're eating a, a heavy plant-based diet, 
you get thinner and thinner. It's very easy for you to control your weight because those things are blocking your use of amino acids or becoming protein deficient and your use of calories in general. So you're on this kind of, it's like almost like bariatric surgery without the surgery where you're interrupting your ability to absorb nutrients by eating so many plant anti-nutrients, right? That's what we mean by anti-nutrients. It interferes with the ability to extract nutrition from your food. So we've, you know, we've moved towards that. And then we discovered vitamins in the early 1900s, not that long ago, only about a hundred years have we had understanding of vitamins and we're still learning. There's a lot we do not know, but human beings managed to thrive and populate the planet on hunting. So, you know, there's a lot of good nutrition in the foods that you can hunt. And we, we see that down. today in communities that still live in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Despite the crippling. That are pasturing our, animals yeah. and. And so it's, but for me, when I finally realized my vegan diet, here I went eight years on vegetarian, eight years on vegan, and my life was just awful through my twenties and thirties. And I just kept, I felt 80. I was in so much pain with arthritis, so many issues, back pain, no energy, brain fog. And I'm in graduate school trying to get my public health degree. And it dawns on me that I'm reacting to wheat. I was a wheat and bread addict. And I would go to the the special bread store that made fresh wheat berry flour that was yes. really heavy. Yes. <laughs> With those great crunchy bread. berries. It was and... like a, pound, a brick this size was like a three pound loaf of bread. It was And you serious. could slice it a quarter of an inch thick and it would fall off in a perfect dense square. <sighs> I couldn't get out of the parking lot without opening the package and eat. I was that addicted to bread. And so I bought one of these loaves and then I spent two days barely able to move and my brain cells weren't working. And I, it finally dawned on me that I was reacting to my food. It was a big revelation. And, I, and then I realized it was the beans and the grains bothering me. And I was, how do I stay vegan without beans and grains? So I tried turkey and got myself through that transition and started doing bone broth. I had shrunk an inch and a half in my 20s on my vegetarian diet. I started doing bone broth and with five years of bone broth, I put an inch back on my spine. But I didn't fix the oxalate problem because I switched from bread to sweet potatoes. So I was still feeling like garbage. I was, some party parts were recovering by adding in some animal foods. And I also developed a whole network of, because Weston A. Price teachings are what saved me from my veganism. I knew where to turn once I recognized, ooh, vegan is not working. I had Weston A. Price to teach me about bone broth and teach me about organ meat and teach me about grass fed. And, and I uh, got a grant at UNC where I worked to um, interview, I did about maybe 25 farmers who were developed, who were growing grass fed meat and, and creating cheese and dairy and all kinds of mixed animal agriculture and loved their animals and met the farmers and put out a guide how to buy direct from farmers for our local economy and for your health, because we were getting referrals from the oncology department with about 50% of everyone with cancer wants to figure out how to live and eat better. They want nutrition advice and oncologists don't do that. So right. the local patients were sent to us so we could for free give them advice. And I thought, I can't send them to the grocery store to cure cancer. That's not going to no. work. I need to send them to farmers. The answer is sitting out there on the field on these beautiful farms by these hardworking 
fabulous people who are willing to love their animals, grow their animals, care for them day in and day out, and then willing to take them for slaughter so we can eat them. I was like, wow, that is noble work. And you're going to yes. do that for me. You're willing to take the animals and, and kill them for me. So I don't have to, I love you for that. Cause that takes a certain grown upness that a lot of us are avoiding. Absolutely. And I just want to insert quickly the idea that a vegetarian lifestyle choice does not harm animals oh, is, is really the um, inconvenient truth mm. of vegetarianism and veganism because farmers who grow vegetables, they need to shoot deers, rabbits, they catch rats, mice, frogs, birds. Squirrels. Tens of thousands of animals are intentionally culled and killed, not to mention the teeny tinies that are killed by pesticides and insecticides. So there really is no higher moral ground. Right. Probably the highest moral ground would be let's slaughter a cow and feed 300 people. Mm -hmm. um, it's a plow too. I mean, all that soil destruction is, is ripping out the lungs of the earth. We've lost, in the US, we've lost many feet of topsoil. Something like three quarters of our topsoil has been flushed down into the ocean for no good. The fish don't want it. So that we can have wheat, corn, and soy. The Ken Burns uh, miniseries on the Great Dust Bowl oh. is so phenomenal. And I absolutely recommend it to everyone. How pasture grazing land, this beautiful North American pasture grazing land that millions, hundreds of millions of buffalo had benefited from, it was turned upside down and um, it became this fertile bread basket. But then because that land wasn't meant to be tilled, it all blew across the entire nation and it caused just a terrible uh, piece of history and loss of life. And to see these images, and there's still a few people who are, are alive during the making of the documentary oh. who were children during the Dust Bowl and their narratives and their storytelling is extraordinary, but it destroyed lives. Fathers took their own lives to like, save their children. And so yes, the loss of soil and what all, obviously all this monocropping, but I don't want to get too far off so topic. I think it's really on topic though, because okay. um, the, the turning of prairie where that was supporting life for tens of millions of years to growing weed and corn lasted a couple generations and then it's gone and Not all even. of what was there is gone and the only way to bring it back is to put animals back on the land absolutely pooping and all that supports the birds and the bees and the soil microorganisms you have to have living soil not just dead dirt we turned living soil into dead dirt by plowing it now people who say meat eating is bad point to the destruction of the rainforest. That's the same thing we've done. We've destroyed the prairies that supported us with buffalo and elk and so on to create our hamburger bun or our vegetarian whatever. It's not any better pointing to some other part of the world and yelling at their mistakes without acknowledging what we've done in our own land, I assume a lot of your listeners are Americans, is just, you know, it's one of those things where you've got one finger pointed out and three pointed right, back. Right, exactly. 
that's not cool. I, I don't think that's very respectful to keep pointing out other people's mistakes and honoring what our agree. own lives are doing. I absolutely agree. And by picking and, out on soy and fake soy foods, this is just trying to move past your own biology and living a shrink-wrapped, highly processed product that comes from the destruction of the ecosystem. Is There's no moral ground to sit there. And the destruction of the knowledge systems of the indigenous people who flourished in North America and globally. Right. Um, so to have a high and mighty view that the way that we're eating now from packaged foods that are created in factories or something, and that this has a higher moral ground or is better for our human health than the way the indigenous people loved and lived on the land and thrived um, is, is really a topsy-turvy world. It's, it's dishonest. It's just like, I don't have to go there because it's all shrink-wrapped for me and clean. And I, I feels like a clean diet because I, I didn't kill anything directly. I mm -hmm. let other people do my dirty work for me. That's not really too honest. And to say, as I did this project with the farmers and, and categorized, you know, what, whether they dock tails, what they treated their land with, how they treat their animals, how you purchase with them, you know, all the details, you know, I, I, was gifted, we had a patient in the hospital who was our chair in our department was gonna send this 20 year old boy to a nursing home saying that he would never ever read again, never walk again, never do anything really. He was a permanent vegetable. And his mom came to us and I got involved in a nutrition plan and called a doctor friend of mine and asked her where you get that raw milk and cream. I need some raw milk now. and. And that Amish family called me back immediately and put me at the head of the line, waiting list so I could get this quart of cream for this boy every week. And by the time I got done with him, our team, the things we did for him, he left that hospital under his own power. And within a month, he was working as a cashier at Whole Foods and he went back to college and finished his degree. And it was the sacrifice of the farmer with the making raw cream and our little effort to connect the two that was a big piece of that recovery. And uh, that connection with every, you know, I started buying all my meat straight from farmers. I buy half a cow, half a pig, whole pig, whatever. Buy my animals and my, my raw cream and so on from the farmers. Th that was the most spiritual thing I ever did was bonding and making friends with my farmers. And, and when I put something in my mouth, I know where it came from and who did that work for me. And it's phenomenal experience, it's wonderful. My boyfriend has been in the Hudson Valley for, I don't know, over 20 years and working in food and organics and really pioneered the grass-fed movement out yeah. of that region. And he says, know your farmer. And we know all of, or most of our farmers. And these are incredibly hardworking people mm -hmm. who have made a dedication to a way of life that is really not supported by funding for government, the funding coming out yeah. of the government for farming. Right, right. So 1%, 1% of the budget, the national agriculture budget, 1% goes to sustainable agriculture. That's, the, that's where I was able to get my grant. I wrote a grant right. to that 1% little piece of money. Right, <laughs> I gave it to the right person. <laughs> So, yeah, they hadn't ever received an application from a medical school before. They were excited that a medical school cared about nutrition and food and farming. So 
that was really lovely. I've been a proponent of local agriculture for a long time now. And so it's all connects to the oxalates. It all connects to coming back to being in touch with your own biology and finding your way to move forward that suits your, keeps your integrity in place. You can still have an eco-consciousness. You can still have a, a reverence for life and you can consume meat if you need to. It is quite possible, however, to, to go low oxalate and save yourself from the worst toxin in the plants and not have to give up your veganism or vegetarianism. It at is least possible. Not initially. It's possible. It's not going to, you're not going to thrive. You're going to be protein malnourished if you try to be vegan and low oxalate because the beans are pretty bad, but you can eat green peas, black eyed peas, chickpeas in moderation. If you use high heat, you know, you really should soak them because of lectins. So the lectins in beans are pretty serious stuff. So you soak them for three days right. and then you cook high heat. In India, they always use pressure cookers. Absolutely, cook they do. And they cook them to death. That's why it comes out as like gruel and soup. You know, the dal and stuff they yes. eat in India is heavily cooked because they have to get rid of the lectins. So you can go in that kind of direction if you're willing to soak and then heavily cook and eat kind of mushy pasty stuff. Um, but I and do then they throw think, seasoning in to make it taste like something you would right. eat. But I think my experience is that if, you know, I think that there's these lectins, these shards or whatever, there's a place, a point where they begin to pierce the gut. We get this leaky yeah. gut or this impermeable gut. Once you've done that, you really have to move away from the cause of all that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Once you, once you get low oxalate, you can hear your body telling you better. So if you're not ready to add meat, you can still back off from the spinach and the high oxalate nuts and seeds. And you're going to have to use stuff like water chestnut flour, and you're mm -hmm. going to have to do some back bends. Use a lot of coconut and, and you, the protein is just, you're going to have to use peas and and black eyed peas for a while, but you can do that. And then, you know, more and more as your body heals, you, your guts will tell you, please, please don't eat so many vegetables. That's what mm -hmm. happened to me and my body guarded me and I've been all the way down to basically full carnivore except for some coconut products. And for me, you know, you, everyone has to adjust and go with this dynamic process of learning, healing, growing, and getting over this. Because the problem with the oxalates is they bioaccumulate. So like we said, it gets into your thyroid gland, it gets into your bones, it gets into your tissues. So when you slow down on the oxalate and get down low enough, you should come down slowly, you get down low enough, your body is still full of oxalate. You haven't solved the problem. You've just stopped making it worse. And you already feel better because you're not making it worse with every meal and not having it come in every meal. Your body's like, oh gosh, and your sleep starts getting better and all kinds of things are nicer. But then if you're really low enough, this, the body goes, oh, wait a minute. I don't have to keep holding on. I don't have to keep holding, holding and waiting, waiting for you to get out of that blackberry patch and quit all that high oxalate food. It's like, ooh, it's listening. It's watching. It's seeing that there's clarity. There's the coast is clear and now the tissues start releasing oxalate out and you're getting auto intoxified by the same old oxalate you already ate and hurt yourself on the way in. Now you've got to turn your whole metabolism around and you have to do the hard work of digging out all these crystals and these deposits with your immune system. It causes inflammation. You've got to kick it down into these toxic molecules that hurt your membranes. 
and that keeps calling in the immune system, you can, you can create autoimmunity with oxalate, even in the clearing phase. So if you don't already have autoimmune problems, you could still develop them or these allergies. This is the problem. Your, your system, your immune system learns to be so overreactive. Absolutely. You end up unable to eat plants. I'm basically allergic to the plant kingdom. And Me I mean, too. Even white rice, which most of us can eat. For you, you can't even eat that. I can eat that. Thank God. There's, you know, I can do coconut and white rice and pineapple. I have no interest, Sally. I just <laughs> look at it. I mean, this sounds so terrible because, you know, I was a great vegetarian cook. I mean, I made the best Brussels sprouts in the world, balsamic Brussels sprouts in the world with toasted pumpkin seeds or something. And I just look at Brussels sprouts. I look at all the vegetables. There's no interest. My yep. body is just like, stay away. Yeah. I, I, it's I a want, huge journey. It's a huge it's journey. It's a huge journey. And I would say, quite frankly, this is going to sound maybe not very friendly, but I'm not interested in, in letting human beings and people that I care about who are vegetarian and vegan, I'm not interested in telling them how they can maintain vegetarian and veganism and get rid of oxalates. I'm really interested in letting them know that there is health on the other side. It's a journey that bone broth, that animal foods, that the foods that human beings domesticated and created a symbiotic relationship with, that these animals support human life and well-being. And I want to add one other piece here, um, is that the brain healing that happens in again, embracing and eating animal foods and getting all these building blocks and getting rid of the oxalates. I didn't know I was an anxious person until I gave up the oxalates and added the animal fats. I was, you know, more superstitious, more suspicious, um, just more, I want to, I mean, I'm kind of a tough cookie, but somehow fragile and yeah. things that I just assumed were, Oh, I'm, you know, this fragile little flower picking girl, I'll leave the team sports to, you know, those other people. Um, actually, that's not my nature. And a lot of the emotionalism I felt even around the horrors of, you know, the suffering of animals or the horrors of human existence. I don't feel that way now. I have much more mental clarity and strength and confidence and esteem, and I'm much better able to be skillful in relationships and in the work that I do and that I share. And I really feel for everyone, but particularly for women, because that's the journey that I can relate to that I've gone through is to really, you know, there is hope, there is mental stability, there is hormonal balance, there is physical fitness and vitality. And I read something of yours recently on your website where you speak about the reason it's so hard to trace these health symptoms to oxalates is because most of us are facing these health symptoms in our 40s and our 50s, and it's just so easy to chalk it up to aging. 
the great news, what I'm experiencing, what you shared with me before we kind of jumped on the official podcast is though we're in our 50s, we feel like we're in our 30s because we have this revived vitality and energy. Could you review some symptoms that people might be having that could make them, that could support them to look at low oxalate living? Absolutely. Yeah. This is important. Is like, how do you recognize, this is partly why this diagnosis got overlooked by medicine and why your doctor's not saying, hey, get off the spinach. Because it used to be a thing called the oxalic acid diathesis in the 1850s. And back then they defined it as someone who had intestinal problems plus either rheumatological problems, which is joint and muscle pain, or neurological problems, which is lots of things. People forget that your mood, your clumsiness, your attitude, your ability to sleep, that's all neuro. And pain can be neuro too. So somebody with gut problems and pain, that's the basic definition from the 1880s. Now, by the 1930s, the definition got like 10 more things on it. You know, there's, there's urological problems like a jumpy bladder. If you suddenly get urinary urgency or if you have to get up overnight, or if you're sometimes a little bit incontinent and leak a little bit, that's all irritated bladder. Women are told that's normal. No. <laughs> that's Doctors tell women like, Oh, this is what happens after this yeah, age. Yeah, because you had a baby. It's your baby. You start leaking because women didn't have babies for gazillion years. Yeah, like, yeah, we were always dribbling on ourselves, right? Yeah. <laughs> so both women and men have a lot of trouble with that. And their urologist won't tell them you need a low oxalate diet. Even, you know, I, I just had a second session with a client yesterday. It was just making me so mad. They would scope him. Now, imagine being scoped with a penis, too. I mean, it's extra bad. It's awful oh. enough to be a girl. But to get a scope up into mm. your bladder, they can't get a scope in him. He's so full of crystals. He's so full of oxalate. They knew oh that goodness. from 2016. And they never said, hey, what are you eating? You should stop with the nuts. He, he was an AIDS survivor. So he grew up on all these healthy greens, dehydrated greens, smoothies. Like, they've been doing this in the AIDS world. They've been doing that healthy. I know stuff, you know, cause we used to say, you know, you start juicing carrots for cancer. We were doing that back in the late sixties, early seventies. I volunteered at a macrobiotic <laughs> kitchen for HIV and AIDS in the nineties. Yeah. It's amazing. Any of them survived. <laughs> and you know, I, fortunately I ran into, I had moved and come back to New York and I ran into someone and he was like, I met you at that, you know, amazing, uh, macrobiotic kitchen. And he said, you know, I was never able to stay with the diet, but you moved me so much. And thank you for your support. And I was like, phew, <laughs> he didn't he stay with the connection. The heart connection was there. Yeah. Right. Boy, I can relate to that because of my work with the inner city lunch program for the elderly. You know, it's like, boy, I, they know the heart connection was there, but right. it was good for. And we need so, more than, we need good facts. We have been miseducated. That's so the right. symptoms include, you know, so the urinary, urinary tract, neurological, digestive stuff, there's vulvar, vulvar pain, any pelvic heaviness. A lot of people just have this feeling of heaviness. that's quite annoying for them. Really like to them, it's a serious symptom of heaviness in the pelvis. That's an oxalate symptom. Eye stuff. If you, if you had, if you needed glasses in 10th grade, like I did, Maybe it was your beat habit when you were 10. <laughs> that, that people will get like weird watery eyes or itchy eyes. Tooth pain is a big one. As I was coming off of oxalates, I would wake up with like 
crystals in my eyes and water in my eyes. Very common, almost universal. It's some people that lie down and when they lay down, suddenly water's pouring out. You can wake up with like grit sticking to your cheekbones. <laughs> That's the oxy coming out. You can start developing, I started developing eye styles. So the eyes are a lot, a lot of facial stuff. And once you go on the diet, that's what we're saying. Like once you go on the diet, this is the body starting to purge. Right. And sometimes you can get, like I had facial pressure that felt like a facial migraine for three weeks. After two weeks after I got serious about the diet and did it right, I had three weeks of what I call the facial migraine that made it hard to fall asleep at night. And now, ever since that three weeks of suffering, I have never had a sinus infection since. I used to get one every year, right around New Year's Eve, every year since I was 17. And by the time I'm 49 and I'm turning into low oxalate now, since then, seven years, not a single sinus infection. So, so there's lots of different body parts and that's because it does all these different things. It's a mitochondrial killer. So if you are low energy, if you're fatigued or can't think straight, or have I was a lot so of like low fog, energy. <clears throat> that, you know, you're killing your mitochondria, your cells, and that's serious because that leads- These are the powerhouses of your cell. These are like the furnaces. You can't do anything without them because you need enough energy just to, just to read what's going on in your body, let alone to duplicate a cell that's getting old and needs to die. You know, like all that tissue replacement, if you don't recover well from injuries, or if you still have scar tissue lingering on your body or a little bit of achiness from your, when you twisted something, you never really fully came back, that could be oxalates because oxalate gets hung up in these recovering tissues. In the weakest areas. The tissue recovering. On low oxalate, I had scar, old scars, like when my sister gouged my arm when we were 14 having a cat bite. That's gone now. Wow. You can, if you know to look for it, you can maybe find it, but it takes kind of excavation to see it. You can heal. At this late date, in our mid to late right. 50s, you can heal. It's a beautiful confirmation of life. It's so exciting, but the process can be difficult. So, the, so how, sometimes so, you can do symptoms when you go on the diet. And then, so it's confusing for people because they think, oh, this isn't working for me because now right. I have this. Or, you know, if it, it is working, it, you get this little window where you can tell something shifted. And then you see these symptoms coming on with like the crystals or funny periods of funkiness or even anxiety or attacks. Like skin peeling eruptions and little things pop out and little scabs appear and then flake off. Yeah. That's the very wise body that can do that because if the body can push out whole crystals, it doesn't have to dissolve them down and put them mm. back in your bloodstream. Cause one of the biggest damages that oxalates are causing, cause it's in your bloodstream all the time is annoying your bloodstream. Your, your vascular system becomes inflamed and it creates oxalates. Uh, hardening of the arteries, atherosclerosis, but chronic inflammation turns into Raynaud syndrome, vasculitis, very poor microcirculation when you get these muscle knots and trigger points, fibromyalgia pain, all that can be vascular damage caused by oxalate. The other thing, if you're chemically sensitive, you probably don't have enough glutathione going on in your liver anymore because you keep eating oxalates that go straight to your liver and your liver has to use its glutathione to protect itself from the damage caused by the oxalate in your food. So a lot of us, a lot of us ex-vegetarians suddenly can go to the mall, suddenly can handle other people's tide on their clothes. Perfume, tide. When I lived in Los Angeles, I would drive by a body shop, a car body shop, 
and just a whiff of paint would get in the car and I would have a red face and Yep. And that's your poor liver. I mean, if you've got, if you've got a funky liver, you can't live in this toxic world. And a lot of people seem okay in it, but those of us who are high oxalate and healthy and vegetarian, like we become chemically sensitive. And, and so it's been very gratifying to see me and others who have this particular problem, which is very debilitating and isolating because nobody gets you. When you say, Oh, please do you have to wear that cheap perfume. Like I stopped mm -hmm. going to church because in the morning and for church, people put on like deodorant with fragrances and makeup with fragrances and hair products with fragrances and more hair products with fragrances. And then they spray perfume on top of it all. In church is like, for me, it was the most toxic place in the world. And then they have 10 of those things hanging in their car or those <laughs> powdered Oh, the dryer sheets. Plus their clothes came from the dry cleaner. You know, right. so we, we purposely throw toxins on us. And if you're ruining your liver with oxalates, you're going to be one of those people who notice it. So that's just another set of symptoms that everyone has a different set of symptoms. And we know this because there's a genetic form of this disease called primary hyperoxaluria. And that's because there's a genetic defect making the, the enzymes that help control how much of certain precursors like vitamin C is a precursor. And some of the ingredients in bone broth, if you overdo bone broth and collagen and, and connective tissue, you can create more oxalate in the body. And the people with primary hyperoxaluria have a real trouble keeping that stuff from becoming oxalate and they get poisoned from their metabolism. And so, you know, that's just severe version of this illness. And each person who has that has a, quite a unique clinical picture. There isn't one way to be sick with oxalate. Oxalate can get you wherever you're sensitive, wherever you're vulnerable, whatever you've got going on in your own history, where your own deficiencies are in nutrition and so on, or where your old injuries were. You're, it's going to sort of tell your life story. It's going to hang out in those places that you're vulnerable. Thank you so much, Sally. So the way to begin is to go to sallykaynorton.com. You've shared so much information on there that someone can get started right away. And then additionally, you have kind of group uh, community chats and educations that people can sign up for. And they can also, I know your time is very limited, but they can work with you as a coach. Right. And I do have a waiting list right now. So it's a long waiting list mm -hmm. for sessions. That's why we're doing the group classes. So at least we can answer basic questions. And I have a cookbook available that has over 200 recipes and over a third of them are vegetable recipes. So if you love vegetables and you want to know which ones to cook and how to make them taste good, if you've never worked with the turnip or rutabaga or some of these lower oxalate vegetables and you want them, that's where you're starting. That's there. There are some meat recipes. There's a little section with how to work with eggs. If you're not used to using eggs and so on, it teaches you all the critical ways to make an egg perfectly boiled, perfectly poached, how to make the best scrambled eggs. Like a lot of us who used to be vegan, we're like, we're clueless right. on how to cook. So I've got all the basics, but, but segregated in a little egg section because a lot of us are so allergic and egg allergy is common because of right. the immunizations, you know? So both my husband and I with MMR overdone or whatever, we were both egg allergic. So I segregate them And my whole cookbook is very sensitive to that because a lot of us with oxalate damage have this hypersensitivity and tendency to issues with histamines and salicylates, which are all secondary to the oxalate stuff. If we straighten out the oxalate and start healing the gut, right. 
everything else gets resolved. Wonderful. And that's certainly been my experience as well. Um, so also I definitely encourage people to go on YouTube, just put your name in and find some other podcasts you've done, but also some presentations and great PowerPoint. There's a spot where you can get to a lot of them from my website too. So in the about menu, the second tab in the about menu is interviews and talks. And so for, for the ones where I can get a URL, I've got URLs for, I don't know, 25, 30 talks and they're right. all different. Each one of each one I is know. focusing on a different thing. I'm surprised at that, but there's a lot of angles to understanding what to eat and understanding oxalate. So well, this link will be there soon too, but I really want to thank you for joining me. I have such deep gratitude to you. Your story is so much like my story and um, you've just put in the work and you share so generously to help us all uh, heal and live vibrant and meaningful lives. Well, you give my life meaning by finding this information and making it work for you. That's exactly the purpose. So it's so exciting. You make me feel like I'm succeeding. You are <laughs> succeeding, Sally. Thank you so much. Bless you and everyone else too. Thank you so much.